Amen. I need somebody, has anybody got a 10-pound note? I'm going I'm to give you change for it. I just, I need, I need a 10-pound note. Anybody? No, nothing smaller than a 50? Where have you got? 10? Okay, brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Andrew. Just checking this. Yeah. Okay, we're good. We're good. Northern Bank. Stolen back. No, yeah. So let me, let me give you change for it. Uh, five. Six, seven, that'll do. Um, thank you. Thank you very much, Andrew. You were short-changed. Short-changed. Have you ever been short-changed in a shop? You ever left and realized that the person at the till gave you the wrong money? And you're slightly suspicious that they did it on purpose, but you go back and give them the benefit of the doubt? Have you ever been short-changed in any other part of your life? Sometimes I think we feel short-changed. We feel like life has shortchanged us. You're shortchanged when you put more in than you get back. When you invest more than you get in return. When you put more into a relationship than you get back. Where you, where you are loyal and kind to somebody and they betray you or they let you down. Where you were owed more but life gave you less. Where you were meant to get this much but you got that much. Where you put in ten but you only got seven back. You've been shortchanged. You try to do good, but bad things happen. Maybe it's a feeling that somebody got something you didn't get. That everybody else got ten and you got seven in life. Maybe it's a feeling that if only things had been different, if only you'd had a different upbringing, if only your parents hadn't made the mistakes they made, if only somebody had been nice to you, if only such and such hadn't happened, life would have been different, but you feel short changed you feel like others have more fortunate have it more fortunate than you others have life easier than you you look at some of your friends and they just seem to have this they breeze through life and you're struggling through life that they never seem to get sick and you're sick they seem to have three or four holidays a year and you struggle to get two days in banger every year at picky pool and 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 it just feels like everybody's enjoying life more than you that they seem to have it all and you have been short changed. If you had their upbringing, huh? they were born with a silver spoon. You didn't even have a spoon at home. If, if, if this didn't happen to you when you were younger, if, if, if your parents had just done a bit better, if other people hadn't treated you so badly, if you'd made different decisions and different choices when you were a teenager, and now you're living with seven when you should have had ten, you've been short-changed. You know, I I think we all have some area of our life where we feel shortchanged at times. We all have that area where we we, we know we put everything in, but we didn't get back what we expected. We poured our lives into something. And we expected to get at least the same back, and and we feel shortchanged. And we think, if only this hadn't happened, if only this person hadn't done that. Today we're going to look at somebody who was shortchanged by life. Somebody who's whole life was shortchanged through no fault of their own. And his name is Mephibosheth. I want you to say that with me three times, really quickly. Okay, after three, Mephibosheth. One, two, three. Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth. You spoke in tongues and you didn't even know you could. We read about him in 2 Samuel. But before we go there, let me give you a little bit of background to Mephibosheth. And I say his name way too many times through this. I, I was going to call him Mephi, but we'll see how we get on. 
Mephibosheth's grandfather was somebody we've been talking about a bit over the last uh, few months. His grandfather was a guy called Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel. And he started off well, but things went downhill because Saul was more interested in pleasing people than pleasing God. And so God rejected him as king and said, I've got somebody else that I want to put in the throne. I've got somebody called David. But Saul didn't want this to happen. So Saul clung to the kingship with everything he had. And he spent 10 years pursuing David. David became a fugitive. We looked at that last week. On the run like an animal living in caves and deserts and wilderness. Because Saul was determined to hold on to something that actually wasn't meant to be his. And Mephibosheth was Saul's grandson. So he had royal blood in his veins. He literally did start his life with a silver spoon in his mouth. He had everything. He had servants. He had nurses. He had, he had everything he, he could have wanted. A little bit like little Archie. Harry and Meghan's little one. He just had luxury and opulence and splendor and everything anybody could have dreamt of. But because of the sins of his grandfather, he got shortchanged. You see, Saul thought he was fighting against David, but when God anoints David, instead of fighting against David, Saul's actually fighting against God. And when you fight against God, you don't win. When you fight against God, the odds are against you. And Saul ends up being killed in battle by the Philistines, the arch enemies of Israel. And his son, Jonathan, also ends up being killed in battle. And Jonathan was Mephibosheth's dad. So at a young age, this wee boy, Mephibosheth, in one day, loses his dad and loses his granddad. Five years old. And that's tragic and that's bad enough. But there's something else that happened that day that's even more tragic. And we read about it in 2 Samuel 4, verse 4. Jonathan, son of Saul, had a son who was lame on both feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. His nurse picked him up and fled. But as she hurried to leave, he fell and became disabled. His name was Mephibosheth. So the news gets back to the palace. Saul's dead. Jonathan's dead. The Philistines have killed the king. And everybody panics because the first place that the Philistines are going to go after they kill the king is to the palace to consolidate their rule, to show that they're really in charge. And so the word gets back and there's this, this woman, this nurse, this childminder, this nanny, and she's looking after Mephibosheth. She's protecting him. It's her job to babysit him, but she panics. And so she picks up the wee boy and her job is to get him to safety as quick as possible to protect this little prince and she lifts him up and we don't know what happened maybe she was climbing the rocks on the hill to get away maybe maybe she was running down the road we don't know what happened but something tragic happened and she stumbled and fell or she dropped him she dropped this little five-year-old boy and he broke both his ankles And she couldn't go and get medical help. She just needed to save his life. And so she kept running. And his ankles never set properly. And so for the rest of his life, he was disabled. He was crippled. For the rest of his life, he had a limp. For the rest of his life, he couldn't walk. And it was through no fault of his own. He was dropped. 
he was dropped. He was dropped by somebody who should have been caring about him. He was dropped by somebody he trusted. He was dropped by somebody who was supposed to look after him. It wasn't her fault. She didn't do it deliberately. There was no malice in it. She was doing her best. But she dropped him. And that one day when he was dropped became a defining moment of the rest of his life. And maybe more than I can understand, maybe you can think of a time when you were dropped. You can think of that time when something dropped in your life and that moment, that day of dropping has started to define everything else that's happened since. Maybe you got a phone call one day out of the blue. And it was your doctor and he said, your test results have come back. And I'm sorry to tell you, And everything since then has been defined by that moment. Maybe you thought you were in a loving marriage with a man you trusted. And then one day you found out the truth. And you were dropped. Maybe you got news about that family that you always dreamt of having that you you weren't going to be able to have them. And you were dropped. Maybe you'd been working faithfully in a company, in a job for 20, 30 years, you poured your life into it, and then one day you're called in and you're dropped. You're told you're not needed anymore. Your job isn't required anymore. And that one moment was just a moment, but it's defined everything that's happened since. That dropping has become a defining moment of your life. Maybe you feel shortchanged. Shortchanged by life, shortchanged by other people. Maybe even feel shortchanged by God here today. And here's the thing about Mephibosheth. People saw the result of the dropping, but they didn't see the actual event happen. All they saw as he grew up was this guy who couldn't walk properly. But they didn't realize what had happened. And when you've been dropped at some stage in your life, And when you've been broken at some stage in your life, people see who you are now. They see the results of the dropping. They see the wound. They see the pain. They see the limp. But they don't know where it came from. All they see is somebody who's a bit different. All they see is someone who maybe doesn't trust. All they see is someone who struggles to interact with people. All they see is somebody who's insecure. All they see is somebody who seems to be brokenhearted. And that's all they see, but they don't see what happened before that. They don't see the dropping. All they see is the dysfunction. All they see is the pain and the hurt and the wounds today. Mephibosheth was dropped. And time moves on. And he's hiding. Because in those days, when a new king came to the throne, here's what a king did. He got rid of the last dynasty completely. If a new king came to the throne, you wanted to make sure that in three or four or five or ten or fifteen years, some rival didn't come and say, actually, I'm Saul's son, I should be the king. And so a new king came to the throne and he destroyed and he assassinated and he got rid of the entire previous dynasty to secure his own position. And so Mephibosheth spends his time in hiding. Mephibosheth is running for his life. David, in the meantime, has been fighting battles. He's been going from glory to glory. He's been extending his kingdom, his territory. He's at the pinnacle and the peak of his success. Things couldn't be 
better for David. He's living in this beautiful palace in Jerusalem. And after he secured so many victories, one day he's lying there. And he's beginning to reflect on his life. He takes a bit of time out. He begins to reflect on his past. He maybe thinks about looking after the sheep and being called in by Samuel and, 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 and fighting Goliath and, and, and working in the palace of Saul and, 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 and the spears. And, and then he remembers his friend Jonathan. His friend Jonathan. Jonathan Saul's son who should have been king. Who was next in line, who was a successor to the throne, who should have been David's arch enemy, and yet somehow Jonathan was able to see God's purposes. Somehow Jonathan looked at David and said, You're meant to be king, not me. I will serve you. I will relinquish my rights to the throne because I know that God has promised you kingship. He sacrificed and submitted to David. And he said this He said, David, there's just one thing. I know you're going to be king, but there's just one thing I would ask of you. Look at what it says in 1 Samuel 20, verses 14 to 15. He says, but show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live, so that I may not be killed. And do not ever cut off your kindness from my family, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. So he simply says, David, I know you're going to be king. Would you look after my family? Would you not do what every other king does and wipe out the the, the rivals? But would you actually do something different here and would you protect my family? Would you look after them? And it says David took a vow and a covenant with Jonathan that day. I'll look after them. And that's what brings us to 2 Samuel chapter 9. Look at verse 1 with me. David asked, Is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Is there anyone left of the house of Saul? That first part of the sentence wouldn't have been unusual to those listening. Is there anyone left of the house of Saul that I can wipe out, that I can destroy, that I can kill? That's what every other king would have said. But this is a bit different. David says, is there anyone else of the left of the house of Saul that I can show kindness to? You see, David didn't know about Mephibosheth. He had been on the run as a fugitive when this little boy was born. He knew nothing about Jonathan's son. And they say, why would you want to do that? Why would you care? You have no connection to anybody. You have no relationship with anybody in Saul's family. Why would you care about them? And he says, because of Jonathan. Because I want to show kindness to Jonathan. Because of Jonathan's sake. Because of the covenant I made with Jonathan. You know, I was studying and preparing and typing this this past week. And my mobile rang as I was sitting in my study. And, and I don't know about you, but when your mobile rings and you don't recognize the number, I, I don't answer it. And I figure they can leave a message if it's because it could be a telemarketer or whatever. And then it rang again and rang, and I thought, this must be urgent. I picked it up and... This voice, this man's voice was on the other end and he says, is that Craig? It took me a while. I couldn't couldn't make him out. There was noise in the background. He was upset. And it turned out that that this man was married to my granny's, or sorry, he was the partner of my granny's sister, Shirley. They'd been together for 25 years and Shirley had just died. And he had no connection to any church whatsoever. And he phoned me and he said, uh, Craig, uh, w- would you do the funeral 
And my gut instinct at first, if I'm being really honest with you, was, I don't want to do a funeral. I don't know this woman. Like, she's my great aunt in theory, but if she'd have walked in here last Sunday, I wouldn't have known who she was. I'd met her twice in my life, probably. And so my immediate gut reaction was to go, and then I, I just I stopped and I remembered how when my granny was living in a, a fold, how John and Shirley would drive down from Antrim to see her regularly and bring her gifts. I remembered when my granny was ill, how they would drive down and spend hours with her at her bedside. I remembered when my granny was in Craigavon Hospital, how John and Shirley would come and see her and how much joy it brought my granny to see her last surviving sister. And immediately I said, of course I'll do the funeral. Of course I'll come down and see you. Of course I'll, 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 do, I'll come back next week and I'll do the funeral and, and, I'll, and I'll do the, 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 the cremation service. and I'll do, Not because of my relationship with Shirley, but because of her kindness to my granny. And that's something of what is happening here. It's not because of Mephibosheth. It's because of Jonathan. It's because of the kindness that Jonathan showed David when David didn't, earn his kindness or deserve his kindness. And so David says, yeah, I will show kindness to Mephibosheth. So he says this. He, 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 he says, is there anyone? Look at verses 2 and 3. Is there anyone in, in Jonathan's family? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king said, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness. Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's lame in both feet. So they bring in this guy Ziba, who used to work for Saul, and they say, is there anyone that, used to, that, that, that I can show kindness to? But if you notice, there's a little bit of a change here. He doesn't just say, is there anyone I can show kindness to? He says, is there anyone I can show God's kindness to? That word for God's kindness in the Hebrew is the word hesed. H-E-S-E-D. And it's not just being nice. It's not just being kind. It's, it's, it's the word for God's kindness displayed towards those in the Old Testament who don't deserve it. It's the word for God's kindness towards his people when they rebel against him. It's the word for God's kindness towards his people when they build idols and altars to other gods. It's a loving kindness. You know what the best? It's the loyal kindness. It's the loyal love of the Lord. Has said. He says, Is there anyone I can show has said to? Is there anyone I can show loyal love to? You know, you don't need me to tell you that we live in a world where there's a deficit of kindness. Everybody's trying to get their own way, everybody's rights, everybody's voice. I want it my way. I want it done the way I think it should be done. If I don't get my way, I'm going to protest. I'm going to, I'm going to scream and shout and let it all out until I get it. And it's what's in it for me. It's all about me and it's my rights. There's not a lot about kindness. There's not a lot about just laying down your rights. And yet as Christians, kindness is supposed to be at the core of who we are. Christians aren't always known for their kindness. And yes, we believe in God's word. And yes, we believe in God's truth. And yes, we believe in absolutes. And yes, there are black and whites. And yes, this book is held in the highest esteem in this church. But we can share this book and we can share God's word with kindness. 
Just simple kindness. Even if we don't, even if we don't agree with people, even if they're a different religion, even if they're a Muslim, even if they're a Hindu, even no matter what, even if they're an ardent atheist, we can show kindness. We can melt people's hearts with kindness. You know, Jesus was so he was so strong, but he was so kind. He was so strong against the religious leaders. He called them a brood of vipers. He went into the temple and overturned the tables and chased them out with the world. Jesus was no wimp. Jesus wasn't like the fifth member of Abba with long flowing blonde hair. Jesus was a man's man. He was a carpenter, but he was so kind. The woman dragged in front of him, caught adultery. He was so kind towards her when all the accusing eyes were on this naked woman. Little Zacchaeus up in the tree. Everybody called him a scumbag. Jesus says, I'm going to your house for dinner. The thief on the cross, Jesus was so kind to him. Kindness isn't weakness. Kindness is simply displaying the character of Jesus. You know, the Bible says in, in, in Ephesians, 5, or Ephesians 5, actually I think it's Galatians 5, I said Ephesians 5, it's Galatians 5, um, about the fruit of the Spirit. That when the Holy Spirit comes and resides in you, when you become a Christian, God, he, he begins to produce the character of Jesus. And that's called the fruit of the Spirit. And it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If Christians were known a little bit more for kindness, I would love Hope Church to be known as a place of kindness. That you can come in here no matter what background you're from, no matter what you've done, no matter... No matter what you believe, no, and you will just find people who, who we, won't, we, won't, we won't tell you we agree with everything you do, okay? Because that's just rubbish. And I don't, want to, I don't want to do that. But we will tell you we can disagree but still be kind. We can disagree lovingly. I don't have to agree with you to love you, and you don't have to agree with me to love me. I didn't agree with Jesus and he loved me. And so as we display something of God's kindness, I think that can make a big difference in the world around us and so he says is there somebody I can show God's kindness to and look at what Zeba the servant of Saul says well he says yes there's a there's a son of Jonathan but here's the thing he, he, he's, he's lame on both feet he, he's crippled he, he, he's disabled David didn't ask about his condition David just asked is there a son but Zeba feels the need to say, actually, yes, there is. But it's almost like he's trying to, there's this undercurrent of, yeah, but he doesn't, he's not really going to fit in around the palace, David. He hasn't really got, you know, he's not, he can't fight in the army. He won't be able to serve, David. I, you know, I just, he's, he's crippled in both feet. He's, he's disabled. You don't really want him in the palace. But look at David's response. I love this. David just says, where is he? Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he's in the house of Machir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. David doesn't care what's wrong with him. David doesn't stop and go, just, just how bad is he? Or, you know, okay, so there's him. Is there anybody else? Like, we'll, we'll park him on the side for a minute. Is there anybody else in David's family that we can show kindness to apart from him? No, he just says, go and get him. Go and find him. I want him here. And, and Zeba says, well, he's actually, he's staying at somebody's house in Lodabar. Which, when we read that, that doesn't sound much. But in Hebrew, the words Lodabar, do you know what that means? No pasture. There was no grass. 
There was nowhere for animals to feed. It was a barren place. It was a wilderness place. It was a desolate place. It was a desert place. It was a place in the back end of nowhere where nothing grew, where there were no plants. And if there were no plants, there were no animals. It was the most barren, desolate, backward place cut off from everyone else. Why would he live there? Because he's on the run from David. Because he he can't live anywhere where there's other people because he knows his life is under threat. Not only has he lost his grandfather, not only has he lost his father, not only was he dropped as a child when he was five and now he can't walk, he's also resigned to living in a barren, desolate place away from everybody else and low to bar. And then one day, There's a knock at the door. They all keep quiet. Nobody ever comes to the door. Shh. Mephibosheth? Mephibosheth, we know you're in there. Shh. Mephibosheth? We know you're in there. This is the moment he's been dreading. He's been hiding all these years and nobody has found out where he is. Somebody must have grasped. Somebody must have told. Somebody must have touted. Mephibosheth, the king wants to see you. Okay. This is it. I guess it's all over. Look at verse 6. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. He fell on his face. This guy who couldn't walk fell on his face. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Next verse, don't be afraid, David said to him. For I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. And you will always eat at my table. This man is shaking in front of him in fear. And David says, don't be afraid. You have nothing to fear. In fact, just the opposite. I want to show you God's kindness. I want to restore to you everything that belonged to your grandfather. Everything that should have been yours. Everything at five years old that you lost. Everything that was taken from you. Everything that that was rightfully yours but you lost. I'm going to restore it all back to you. Every single I know you've been shortchanged. I know your life hasn't been how you'd want it to be, but I want to do something about that right now. I'm going to make it right. I'm so glad our God is a God of restoration. I'm so glad our God is a God who restores things that were robbed. You know, the Bible says that, that the devil comes to steal, kill, and destroy. He steals things. He steals our, our joy. He steals our hope. He steals our peace. He steals our purity. He steals our, our sanity. He steals our, 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 our joy. He, he steals our marriages. He, steal, he steals our relationships. He, he, steal, he breaks up homes and families and robs us of our freedom and destroys our health. And He leaves us feeling empty and, and broken and useless. But our God is a God of restoration. He brings things back. He brings things back that you lost. He returns things. He puts it back together again. He fixes it. He makes it whole. He heals broken hearts. You know, Jesus was a carpenter. He fixed things and he's never stopped fixing things. He fixes things and he makes them whole. He heals broken hearts and broken bodies. He accepts the unlovable and he embraces the untouchable and no one is too far gone. He restores and he repairs. And Mephibosheth is overwhelmed. 
by the kindness of the king. He's completely undone. Look at what he says. Verse 8. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? I'm not. I'm just a dead dog. I'm in. Like, what do you do with a dead dog? You just drag it around. That's how he feels. Like he's, I, just, I, I just dragged around. I'm useless. I, 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 I just I have no purpose. I have no value. You know what's interesting? David, or, or Mephibosheth's name, you know what Bosheth means? Shame. Bosheth is a Hebrew word for shame. He has shame attached to his name. He had never done anything to be ashamed, and yet shame was attached to him because of something else that had happened to him. You know, people sometimes use guilt and shame synonymously. They think that they're the same thing. They're not. Guilt is where you do something wrong and you feel bad for it. Guilt is good. If you break the law, if you break somebody's heart, if you hurt somebody, if you say something and you feel guilty and you go and you say you're sorry, and you, that's, that's good. Guilt is good. Shame is not. Shame is not. The Holy Spirit will maybe bring guilt and conviction into our hearts to point us to Christ to be forgiven. Shame is something completely different. Shame says, I'm not worthy. I'm unworthy of love. I'm unworthy of value. I'm unworthy of acceptance. Guilt says you made a mistake. Shame says, I am a mistake. You're inferior. You're inadequate. You're less than everyone else. Mephibosheth had shame attached to his name. He didn't deserve what happened to him, but we don't have to we don't have to deserve things for us to carry shame around. It can be words spoken over you by a parent, a teacher, a headmaster. It can be words spoken over your own life. It can be something you did years ago. Maybe you made a bad decision one night and you ended up in a position you never thought you'd be in. Maybe you've done things that nobody ever knows about and you're carrying shame about. And I want to say to you that our God is a God who takes not only your guilt, he takes your shame. He lifts your shame. God's will for you is not to live with shame in your life. Jesus Christ became cursed on the cross. He, he, he hung on the cross naked in the most shameful way so that he could take your shame away. Look at how king, the, king resp- uh, the king responds. Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grants on everything belonged, that belonged to Saul and his family. I've returned it all. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and to bring in the crops. I think that's brilliant. Where had he been living? Lodabar, the place of no pasture, the place where nothing grew. What's he going to have now? He's going to have land and crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at the king's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. He gives them servants. He gives them land. He provides all his needs and more. He gives them abundance. But not only that, he invites them to eat at the king's table. You see, Mephibosheth had no daddy. So David says, I'll be your dad. You can eat with my sons. All my boys, 
are going to be around the table and there's a seat with your name on it, Mephibosheth. Any day you want, there's a seat at my table and I'm going to treat you just like one of my own boys. What an incredible picture of what God does for us. That we're broken by sin. Sins we have done, sins done to us. Sin in our bloodline from our first parents, Adam and Eve. We're separated from the king. We're hiding from God. We're fearful because we know he's holy and we're not. And we're broken. But God comes looking for us. He sends his son, Jesus Christ, who comes into the world and lives the perfect life we could never live, died on the cross of death. You and I should have died and he rose from the grave. And because of his death and because of his resurrection, there's a place at the table. But we can't get to the table because we're crippled. We're, we're lame. We're, we're broken. We can't make it from where we are on the outside to the king's palace. And so he comes looking for us and he lifts us and he carries us and he brings us to the palace. And he says everything that was lost at the fall, everything that Adam and Eve lost, all that relationship, all that intimacy with God, that relationship, that eternity in heaven, all of that that was lost, it's all restored. And there's a seat at the table for you, my son. He adopts us as his sons and daughters. He adopts us as sons and daughters of the king. And he gives us a seat at the table. And he says, I'm going to lavish you with love. I'm going to lavish you with everything you need. You will lack nothing. It was for Jonathan's sake, and now it's for Jesus' sake, that we're brought to the table. Yet here's the thing, and I'm going to finish here. Here's the thing. It's strange that the last thing it tells us about Mephibosheth is this in verse 13. He always ate at the king's table. He was lame on both feet. We've already been told that. It told us that earlier. Why is it telling us that again? Do you know what it's saying? It's saying that his position has changed, but his condition hasn't completely been healed. He's still lame on both feet. He still had a place of brokenness in his life. But that didn't disqualify him from sitting at the king's table. And you know, when you become a Christian, when you come to God, he changes your life. The Bible says you're a new creation in Christ. And so much changes. And your position changes You're now the righteousness of God. You're now a child of God. You're now a son or daughter of God. You're adopted into his family. All of that changes. But sometimes you can carry a condition there with you that doesn't change just as quickly. Sometimes you can carry brokenness and woundedness into, into your Christian life. And it would be wonderful if it changed overnight. But the reality is it, it doesn't sometimes. There's an area where you're still broken. But you're still struggling. Let me tell you a secret. Do you know who the person in this church I struggle with most is? Me. I mean, some of you are hard work, but I'm just looking straight up here. I'm not looking at anyone. But honestly, really honestly, the person I have the biggest struggle with in this church is me, is Craig Cooney. I struggle with my own sin. I struggle. I've been a Christian for nearly 30 years. Like I thought I'd have dealt with some of this rubbish by now. Like some of the temptations I had when I was 14, I'm 44 now and I'm still dealing with them. 
I thought I'd be a lot nicer to people by now. I thought I would have, my, my attitude would have been sorted. I thought I'd be pretty much, I mean, I'm ordained 13. You know what I mean? I, I'm supposed to be, like, really have it all together by now. I, I, I have brokenness in my life. I have wounds. I have places that I just, I wanted to be further along than I am. And sometimes I think I'm further along and then I stumble again and I limp again. And I think, God, like, seriously, you could have done so much better. Like, you could have done so much better to have somebody to lead this church. You could have done so much better to have somebody. Like, and he says, come to the table. Because here's the thing. When Mephibosheth was at the king's table, what bit of him was broken? His feet. When you walked into the room, you couldn't see that. He looked just like all the other sons. And the tablecloth of the king covered his most broken part. And the tablecloth of God's grace covers your greatest brokenness. It covers your greatest woundedness. It covers your greatest sin. And his grace is always greater than your sin. His blood is more than adequate to cover your greatest weakness. His, his love is so much stronger than anything that has happened in your past or anything that's happened in your present or anything that's going to happen in your future. You aren't disqualified from a table, from his table because of your brokenness, because of your limp. Sometimes you know what, you just live with a limp. And that's okay. And sometimes people say this, and maybe you've heard them say, they'll say something like, you know, Christianity is just a crutch for weak people. And they say it as if it's kind of like they're trying to have a go at you. And I always go, yeah, if I've broken my leg... I'll take a crutch and I'll lean my full weight on that crutch because it keeps me moving forward. And if I've got a broken soul, I'm going to lean on Jesus. My full weight. How do I, how do I get up in the morning without that? I'm going to lean my full weight on Jesus because that's the only way I can move forward in life. That's the only way I can survive. That's the only way I can live. I'm going to finish with a story here. Those of you who are my age and a little bit older, i.e. really old, um, might remember back in the 80s, there were two very famous American televangelists who were both caught up at a huge scandal. Can you remember their names? Swaggart was one. Swaggart and... The other one's wife was called Tommy Faye. Baker. If you'd have been living in the late 70s and 80s, these guys, Jimmy Swaggart and Jimmy Baker and Tommy Faye Baker were on every channel in America. They were on TV. They had multi-million dollar empires. They were huge in the Christian scene. They had the biggest ministries in the world. And Jimmy Baker and his wife Tommy Faye, she had big hair, big makeup, looked like she'd put it on with a paintball gun. And they had this huge empire and then it came to light that Jimmy Baker had committed sexual and financial crimes and he was sentenced to 18 years in prison and overnight he lost everything. While he was in prison, about two years after he was in prison, his wife divorced him and married one of his best friends. 
humiliated, disgraced and abandoned. Nobody wanted to know him. Nobody wanted to be associated with him. Christians, particularly ministers, wouldn't touch him with a barge pole because they were afraid of their ministries being tainted by their association with him. But just last year, Jimmy Becker told a story. It was when Billy Graham died. Most of you will have heard, if not all of you, of Billy Graham. Passed away last year at 100 years old. This is what he told a story. He shared a story about his time in prison. This is what he said. And it's just, I'm reading his words here. When I was in that prison, the lowest day probably up to that moment in prison, I was sick. I had pneumonia. I cleaned toilets for five years. Every day that was my job. Even on this day when I felt like I was dying. That morning I cleaned my toilets. I had my shoes with the holes in the toes. They were my toilet shoes. The guard called me. They said, Becker, you've got a visitor. And I said, it's not visiting day. I didn't know who it was. He said, you need to go to the warden's office right now. I said, God help me, I'm in trouble. He said, I I had all my old clothes. I had all my wrinkled toilet cleaning clothes, not my visiting my family clothes. My hair was disheveled. My clothes were disheveled. I was sick with pneumonia. I looked like a man that had been sleeping under a bridge for years. So I walked over to the warden's office across the prison yard and I stood out there. Someone came out of the office and said, Baker, you've got a visitor. I said, it's not visiting day. Who's here? He said, has nobody told you? Billy Graham's here. He said, do you want to see him? He says, I looked down at my shoes with my toes hanging out and my wrinkled clothes. I was sick, I looked bad and I thought, you know what, the last time I saw Billy Graham, he was on my TV show. I was at the very top of my success. I thought, I don't want him to see me looking like this. But he had come, so I had to go out. He says, I walked into the room and the warden was there and the assistant warden, because all of them wanted to see Billy Graham. But when I walked in, all I could see was a six foot something man. And I'm a five foot something guy. And I walked in and Billy Graham threw his arms around me. Baker said tearfully. And he held me and he said, Jim, I love you. How could anyone love me looking like that? I'd been disgraced to the world. Just one day before this on the radio I'd heard that Billy Graham had been voted as one of the top three most respected men in the world. And here he is in my prison, holding me in his arms, telling me that he loved me, and I didn't feel love very much anymore. He says, when I got out of prison, still nobody wanted to know me. But Billy and Ruth Graham would often invite me to their home. They'd have me at their table for dinner. Then he said this, they represented Jesus Christ as someone who the world said was fallen and finished. What a beautiful picture of God's grace. No matter who we are, no matter what we've done, no matter how broken, wounded, messed up, fallen or flawed we are, Jesus comes to us and he embraces us. He comes and finds us and he lifts us up and he says there's a seat at the table. I've been reserving a seat and it's got your name on it. Will you come and dine with the king? Let's pray together.